Hi everyone and welcome back to Murder in the North. I'm Zach. And I'm Kelby. And this week is Kelby's episode. Before we get into it, I did want to just say a quick thanks to everybody who who has been listening and everyone who has been following us on our TikTok and our Instagram. If you're not following us already, it's Murder in the North podcast for both. And before I jump into this week's episode, I just wanted to preface by doing a quick trigger warning as this episode does talk a lot about sexual assault, abuse, children, and murder. So please listen with caution and this will be the only trigger warning. Our case sources this week are historydaily.org, timetoast.com, dyingwords.net, and a YouTube video by Leah Aaron. Our case takes place in Vancouver, British Columbia and is about Gilbert Paul Elsie. Gilbert was born in Vancouver on December 12, 1931, to Winifred and Jack Elsie. Born as Gilbert Paul Elsie, Gilbert was the second oldest to three boys. His older brother's name was Bud and his younger brother's name was Robert. And much like the other cases we've covered in the past, Winifred and Jack would end up separating and getting a divorce and remarry where they would each start their own families. After the separation, the three boys ended up residing with Jack, since Jack made more money than Winifred did and made more sense for the family for the boys to be with him. Growing up, Gilbert had trouble making friends, and Pierce thought he was antisocial and made fun of him for his stature, being short and stocky. From the ongoing bullying, Gilbert dropped out of school at 16 and began drinking heavily. His drinking increased to the point that Gilbert became dependent on alcohol. Winifred, Gilbert's mother, did not condone this behavior and would simply not answer Gilbert's calls and would often avoid him due to Gilbert's alcohol abuse. It was stated that Gilbert would drink over 50 ounces of vodka per day. I was interested to know what this amount looked like, so when I googled it, it said that 50 ounces of liquid is equivalent to 6.25 cups. So That's like as much water you should be drinking a day. (laughs) So on average, that was what Gilbert ingested each day, which is quite a lot. That's holy. So Gilbert made some friends, but they were often heavy drinkers, much like him, and soon he began spiraling. He had a passion for cars and worked on vehicles where he primarily assisted with the bodywork. However, Gilbert's alcohol use really began to affect him, and he was struggling to stay sober. Because of this, Gilbert was unable to maintain a steady income and steady working hours. In 1949, Gilbert relocated to Los Angeles in hopes to create a name for himself by making a living wage working on vehicles. However, this did not go as planned as Gilbert was unable to find employment, so he moved back to Vancouver. After moving back, Gilbert picked up odd jobs here and there to help obtain a steady source of income. However, Gilbert's drinking began to increase more, and this is eventually when he began breaking the law. Gilbert started with small crimes like stealing and then moved up to stealing cars. At the age of 18, Gilbert was charged for stealing a friend's car. Gilbert told police that the car belonged to a friend and that he was just test driving it in hopes of purchasing it, and that he didn't realize he was committing a crime. So he yeah. stole a friend's car and then was charged with it. So the court did not believe Gilbert and he was then charged and sentenced to 12 months in prison. Hmm. Okay. I don't know how he didn't realize what he was doing was wrong, was wrong but yeah. by 1952, 21-year-old Gilbert's criminal record included theft, assault, heroin possession, and car theft. And from 1952 to 1960, he was charged six more times on the account of theft-related offenses, 
Gilbert was convicted of four of those, six, and two of those convictions he served 12 months each in prison. So altogether 24 months. So he, is that like on top of the time he already did for the car theft? Yes, this one's different. Oh, so this is up to like three years in prison now. Right. So he served the 12 months for stealing a friend's car and then he accumulated more criminal offenses. Yeah. Um, which convicted him to the 24 months. Or which sentenced him to 24 months, yeah. Okay. So in 1961, the RCMP found Gilbert in a gravel pit by himself with a five-year-old indigenous child. What? He, yeah, he admitted to taking her from her reserve in Mission, BC, but further information regarding this was not available. So, like, she must have been, like, reported missing. Yes. So her, like, her parents um, and the reserve, like, the community, they reported her missing, um, which was when they found this car in the gravel pit. They thought this was kind of weird and ultimately found him with her. Oh, my God. After being taken to court for this abduction, charges were actually dropped by the Crown, as it was stated that due to the girl's age, the court did not see her as a reliable source. So we're going to charge this guy for car-related things and then sentence him to prison time. But when he abducts a little child, sorry, we don't have a good witness. Oh, absolutely. I think it's outrageous. Seriously. (laughs) And I actually wanted to say really quick, like when I was researching this and when I heard about it, I found it to be very disheartening. I would like to think that we as a society have grown from this, but I also realized there are many flaws in our system. However, I truly believe that if this young girl had not been indigenous, things would have been different. What happened to this young girl was unacceptable and she did not deserve what happened to her. And it's super unfortunate and unacceptable to hear yet again that the justice system failed her, just like other victims. Gilbert continued facing theft charges going into 1961, so the same year he actually abducted that little girl. Gilbert would actually stop traffic at the Lionsgate Bridge while heavily intoxicated, where he would threaten to jump off the bridge. He was initially charged for this, but the Crown changed their mind yet again, and Gilbert was then sent to Riverview Mental Health Facility for two months. Only two months? Yes, and after spending time at that facility in 1963, he picked up two women in Vancouver's downtown east side. If you're not familiar with this location, the downtown east side is also referred to as Skid Row. Um, this location is very populated with individuals experiencing homelessness and is also a spot where people use substances and in- individuals engage in sex work. Um, now, not everyone in this population may fall into that category, but this is like kind of what that location is more so known for. So Gilbert invited the two women into his car where the three of them began to drink. One of the women in the car actually exited the vehicle after feeling ill from drinking so much. After the woman left the vehicle, Gilbert would drive away with the woman's purse and her belongings, while the other girl was still in the front seat. The girl in the front seat would end up passing out from the amount of alcohol she ingested. Gilbert would then drive him and the other woman to a secluded area, where Gilbert would then sexually assault this woman. The woman who were sexually assaulted would actually go to police, and Gilbert was brought to court for this. He was being charged with theft and sexual assault. Sources said that during this trial... Gilbert actually walked into the courtroom, yelled at the judge, clicked his heels together, and made a straight-arm Nazi salute. What? Yeah, this took everyone off guard, and the judge was obviously not happy that this man walked in and was almost treating it as a joke. Um, He was assessed by a psychiatrist where they found Gilbert to be mentally ill, but I was unable to find what kind of diagnosis they diagnosed him with. 
Some sources said that they believe Gilbert acted this way so he wouldn't be charged with sexual assault. And regardless, it worked and the charges were dropped. As no it, way. Yeah. It was deemed that the victim had very little recollection of the events that took place. Which, I mean, like, the girl was drinking. like Yeah. And like, that that's no fault of her own. Seriously. And, like, with somebody who has been drinking a lot for a lot of years... And she happens to, which she, well, she happens to get sexually assaulted. And now they're like, well, we don't know. Absolutely. And I think with his criminal history, I think it's very easy to be like, yeah, okay, we believe the victim as it should be. But he was convicted on two counts of theft over $50 for driving off with the woman's purse. And he was sentenced to two years in prison for each offense. Well, they got him with that one. But his convictions were overturned on appeal. Of course. Which I thought it was kind of interesting to say that they were going to charge him for theft over 50, but they weren't going to take a victim's word of her being sexually assaulted. Yeah, like, come on, man. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say that just because the victim was intoxicated does not mean that she was not a credible source, as we kind of mentioned. She was brave enough to go to law enforcement who are supposed to protect civilians, but then gets told that the man who assaulted her was not being charged. What does this message send, especially with his criminal history, as we talked about? Regardless, though, that that does not give anyone the right to do what was done to these poor women. And much like the indigenous girl I spoke about, a lot of the women who resided on Vancouver's east side were often sex workers. Now, it wasn't confirmed that she was, and even if she was, it shouldn't really make a difference. But my thoughts on this are that maybe law enforcement might have believed that she was a sex worker, and because of this, might have not taken the case as seriously as they should. Um, And again, I want to clarify, it does not matter who you are. You should never, ever take advantage of another person without consent. And even if she was to quote-unquote consent, it wouldn't be valid because she was intoxicated. Well, and like we've even listen to other cases that like the sex workers do not get anywhere close to the same attention as anybody else does where like that shouldn't be the case at all like that's right they like everyone should be well this can be spoken for a lot of things but everyone should be seen the same i think in like marginalized populations too we've kind of seen that over the years that a lot of the like indigenous news may not get the same attention that you know white yeah. cases do and it's super oh, unfortunate yeah. and disheartening to hear and see it repeating itself time after time um but while in prison gilbert learned to cut hair and eventually he opened up his own barber shop so he combining his love of alcohol and passion for hair gilbert earned the nickname boozing barber I was genuinely curious to know if Gilbert had a lot of business at this barbershop, but majority of the information online is about his life and the crimes he committed, and rightfully so. I was also interested because, I don't know about you, but if someone referred to me as the boozing barber, or like my hairstylist as the boozing barber, I would most definitely not trust them into cutting my hair. No, that guy is that guy is cutting a lot more than just hair with that kind of nickname. And there is no way that I would be booking. And if I got there and they're like, you're with the booze and barb, you'd be like, no, I'm in my car. (laughs) I'm actually going to go to first choice. It's fine. Thanks. I'd rather first choice than a barber if that's his name. No shade to first choice. But anyways, in January of 1965, Gilbert was brought into questioning by police after the body of Ivy Rose Oswald, a switchboard operator, was found deceased at the Lyle Hotel in Vancouver by a cleaner. Gilbert was brought into questioning as the hotel records showed that Gilbert and Ivy had 
checked into the hotel together the night prior. When Gilbert met with police, Gilbert had some of Ivy's belongings, which helped officers prove that Gilbert had in fact been with Ivy the night that she died. He confessed to police that he had in fact been with Ivy and that the two checked into the hotel, were drinking, had sex, and fell asleep. Gilbert claimed that when he woke up, Ivy was dead. And if that's the case, I'm not too sure why he would not call police. But autopsy showed that Ivy had a blood alcohol content of 0.51, which is more than six times the legal limit for impaired driving, which is 0.08. It was also mentioned that Ivy was not known to be a drinker. So it's like this is happening and it's like he's being looked into, but really not that much. Exactly. Especially with like somebody who's not a drinker having that high of a blood alcohol level like come on but keep in mind that a lot of the people he would be with would be of marginalized population so again going back to what we were just talking about exactly so blood alcohol content between 0.16 to 0.3 would cause the average person to lose consciousness from drinking to put this into perspective if you were to chug 12 beers at once your blood alcohol content would be around 0.3 So Ivy's nude body was found actually laying on a bed covered in wounds on her chin, skin, and scalp. Pathologists found this to be superficial and did not believe these wounds had anything to do with this event. Officers deemed there to be insufficient evidence to charge Gilbert with theft, and he was later released. Her death was ruled an accident, and Gilbert was released with no charges against him. Four days after the death of Ivy, Gilbert filed to change his name from Gilbert Paul Elsie to Gilbert Paul Jordan. And now Gilbert's older brother Bud told Vancouver Sun in an interview on October 22, 1988, that Gilbert changed his last name because of the embarrassment his crimes were causing the family. Which kind of goes back to at the beginning when I spoke about his mom not wanting to have like any contact with him because of his drinking. That's definitely got to be like a huge part in everything. Like, that your family's kind of saying this about this and like your mom's not even talking to you because of it. Right. Like that's probably just feeding his addiction even more. And after he changed his name, his criminal offenses actually began to increase. And between 1966 to 1971, Gilbert was charged with 18 varying offenses, some of which included theft, assault, drunk driving, heroin possession, and indecent act, which means he was performing a sexual act in public in the presence of one or more people. And actually, two of Gilbert's drunk driving charges were accumulated on the same day. What? On the exact same day. Like, was he using like it? Like, I know you probably don't even have the information, but like, like you would think after the first one, his like car impounded, is impounded. You're in jail. So like, did he? get his car impounded and then just like stole another car and said hey let's try this again well most of the charges against him were actually dropped from the crown due to lack of evidence oh frig off yeah but also reading this kind of made me reflect on when he had like the two women in his car and he stole the one's purse and sexually assaulted her yeah they had been drinking and he was driving and they would like they wouldn't take her as a credible source but he was drinking and driving then as well I didn't even think about that. Yeah, nothing was mentioned on that, which I think is quite interesting. Seriously. Because, like, yeah, in that case, like, why didn't he at least get a drinking and driving? Yeah, I think with everything we've learned so far, we both know that he's really good at manipulating the system. Oh, 100%. 
1971, Gilbert moved to northern British Columbia to the town of Prince George, where he began dating a woman named Renata. The two got married in 1972, and their relationship was kind of rocky from the start, with Gilbert being convicted on three different sexual offenses during this time. The first one was in April of 1971, when Gilbert was 41 years old. He would invite a group of local school children to his home to watch TV, where he would then expose himself to the children. In 1973 to 1975, he was convicted of many sexual-related offenses and others associated with violence and alcohol. And at the age of 42 in 1973, he was convicted of indecent exposure once again after exposing himself to school children in Mackenzie, British Columbia. Please tell me that he got something. He served some time in prison for this, but would later return to Prince George. Did it say how long he got? I couldn't, like, I didn't say when I looked it up, but from the research that I've gathered, most of his time he spent was, like, a few months, like, one to two years at most, but he would also appeal a lot of the charges, and it would give him a lesser sentence. Oh, my goodness. Which, obviously, is not fair. No. This man has had so many charges, like, I feel like... Well, and especially when, like, he's literally exposing himself to kids. Right. I think it gets a little bit different when it starts, like, dealing with children. You would... Well, I would... You would hope. Right. So, in the same year, 1975, Gilbert offered a ride to a woman where he then attempted to sexually assault her. A stranger overheard the woman screaming and was able to intervene, thankfully, Gilbert's impulsiveness and anger was not only directed at strangers, his wife Renata was actually admitted to hospital in 1973 and twice in 1974, but would refuse to say what exactly happened to bring her to hospital. During Renata's admittance into hospital in 1974, the hospital began receiving threatening phone calls from Gilbert, stating that the hospital needed to discharge Renata. Thankfully, though, his request was denied and he was forbidden to visit her due to his behavior. Why does it feel like the hospital is doing more than their actual, like, system is? Yeah, I, I agree. So Gilbert went as far as to wearing a wig as a disguise in hopes to break his wife out of the hospital, but was stopped by hospital security. <laughs> what did he think was going to happen? Like, I'm going to go in there and they're just going to let me out with her. Like, it's like the movies. Seriously. Yeah, obviously he wasn't thinking, and I think also at the same time we've kind of gathered he is suffering with, well, yes, mental health as well, right? So this time, though, with Renata being in hospital served her well, um, as she was able to heal in private and let her be alone without the fear of Gilbert attempting to sneak her out. This time served Renata well, and in October of 1975, she decided that she actually no longer wanted to continue this whirlwind of her relationship with Gilbert, and after she was able to be discharged, she asked for police assistance to the airport, where she would then hop on a plane to California in hopes to never see Gilbert again. Good for her. Yeah. Finally taking the stance, (laughs) like finally like sticking up to him. Right. And what do you think happened? Oh, something happened. It's Gilbert. So Gilbert would actually call in a bomb threat to the plane Renata was on. Gilbert was then charged and convicted with endangering the safety of aircraft in flight, but he would appeal this charge and win as the plane actually had not taken off. Are you serious? That is what it says. Oh my. So again, just kind of relating back, this man is obviously very unwell, who would think to just call in a bomb threat like that? Seriously. You know? 
to just to so your wife doesn't leave you. She's obviously leaving for a reason, but right. let's not work on that. So with Gilbert being a single man without Renata, he continued his drinking habits. And in December of 1975, he would meet a woman outside the liquor store in Prince George, British Columbia. Gilbert would then offer the woman a ride where the two would go back to his home where they would drink heavily. The woman would later pass out from an increased alcohol consumption, but regained consciousness to see Gilbert trying to take advantage of her and sexually assault her in his bathroom. The woman attempted to escape but was stopped by Gilbert, where he began choking the woman and escalated to the point he became physically abusive and assaulted her. Gilbert was convicted of this crime and sentenced to two years less a day for this crime. Now, to clarify, I personally did not know what two years less a day meant, but to provide some clarification, because sentences of two years or more must be served in a penitentiary as opposed to a provincial reformatory, a sentence of two years less a day secures a reformatory term. In many cases, then, um, a two-year sentence requires serving less time than a reformatory sentence, up to half that length. You know, I'm happy that he finally, like, finally somebody, like, at least one crown was like, you know what, like, no, you are getting time for this. I still don't think it was that long, but yes, I agree with you. Oh, it definitely could have been. off every time. It definitely could have been longer. So, with Gilbert's violent history, the Crown Council and Prince George attempted to have Gilbert declared as a dangerous offender. So, to provide more clarification for those who may not be familiar with Canada's justice system, in Canada, we do not have the death penalty or life sentences without parole, unlike other countries. We just have life, and then after 25 years of serving a sentence, people then have the opportunity to apply for parole. I think I explained this incorrectly in one of the last episodes, which is just kind of why I'm reiterating it. However, there is a small loophole which is presented in this case, and that is the Dangerous Offenders Act. This just means that somebody is convicted and beyond redemption. The Crown can then apply for the Dangerous Offender status, and this is reserved for the most violent people. So just to provide an example, someone that has been deemed a Dangerous Offender in Canada would be Paul Bernardo. So the crime would need to show that there is a high risk that the offender will commit another violent or sexual crime in the future, which I think in Gilbert's case, this is pretty evident from his history. Oh, yeah. you Well, you would hope so, at least. So this designation carries an automatic sentence of imprisonment for an indeterminate period with no possibility for parole for seven years. Dangerous offenders are able to apply for parole after seven years, but usually the indeterminate sentence equates to life in prison and very few dangerous offenders are actually ever released. It's very rare for people who are declared dangerous offender to be released from prison because this legislation is a loophole into keeping the individual locked up for as long as possible since they cannot be trusted within the community. So many people actually came to testify against Gilbert to say he is a threat to society um, and could not be trusted. However, the court denied the Crown's dangerous offender application and Gilbert was released. He continued his criminal path and was arrested once more for indecent exposure in Cold Lake, Alberta, only two months after this trial. Like, I hope that whoever ruled against it was like, oh man, we probably should have uh, gone the other way on that. Yeah. I mean, two months after, that's kind of a slap in the face, you know? Like, Seriously. So a month after that, 
Gilbert abducted and sexually assaulted a woman from a mental health institution who was 47 years old but had the mental capacity of a child. Gilbert had convinced the woman that he was a doctor and lured her into his car. The two went to a hotel in Alberta and Gilbert physically and sexually assaulted her. He kept this woman for three days, only feeding her vodka. He would then steal her jewelry and force her back into the car where his plan was to head west. During their drive, he was pulled over and actually a police car passed by Gilbert's car that was parked on the like, side of the road and decided to check on it because they thought it was kind of suspicious. Yeah. When police went up to the car, they saw various empty liquor bottles and saw the woman had bruises and scratches all over her body. Gilbert claimed the woman fell, but the woman actually spoke up to police and said that Gilbert had physically assaulted her. Good. I know, right? That I can't even imagine how much courage that would have taken. Seriously. And especially like after everything she was already through with him. Yeah. Like just to be able to speak up like that. Yeah, absolutely. Police charged Gilbert with sexual assault and kidnapping. He pleaded guilty to assault and was sentenced to 26 months in prison. How much of that term did he actually serve? Or did he serve the full thing? This one, I believe he... he Actually did the full trip. Right. Okay. Because on April 28th in 1976, he was examined by Dr. Tibor, and I might say this improperly, Bizardi, as part of a court proceeding. The doctor diagnosed Gilbert with antisocial personality disorder, which is a mental disorder in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. Which is... If we look at that now, I feel like Gilbert's face would be beside it. Seriously, if you Googled everything, like what you just said, it's like, here's a picture of Gilbert. This is a prime example, and this is his story. Right. So, in 1979, Gilbert was released from prison and returned back to Vancouver. So, yes, he did serve his his full um, sentence. Well, at least he finally served the full sentence and didn't get it reduced. Right. So, during Gilbert's time in jail, he actually received an inheritance from a family member Gilbert had consulted with a broker, and I I don't want to give him credit, but I feel like this is kind of smart. He invested the money into the stock market. Who is leaving this man money? That was my next question, because <laughs> by the sounds of it, his family was not the biggest fan of him. Yeah, like his mother won't talk to him. His brothers, well, we kind of haven't really heard of the one brother too right. much, but like his one brother really doesn't seem like he likes him either. Like, it must be like a distant aunt or uncle that doesn't really know of what's going on. Right. No social media. Yeah. Well, around <laughs> well, guess, this time, there's not yeah, really social down, media. <laughs> reflecting, yeah, there's no Instagram or anything during this time. Well, we're millennials. <laughs> All the newspapers. Maybe they're just, like, not reading the newspapers. Yeah. But anyways, he wasn't hurting for money, which makes sense since he was always able to defend his charges and always had a defense team. It actually was estimated that he spent $250,000 on legal defense fees over three decades. And on appeals, approximately $26,000 was spent. Oh my god. Right. So again, not hurting for money. And I guess this is also shows how he was able to afford his alcohol. Yeah, and I never even thought of the fact that, like you mentioned, like how he had a good... He must... Well... He definitely had a good team if they were getting him out of all the stuff that he was getting into. Absolutely. So during this time, Gilbert would open up his own barbershop in Vancouver's downtown east side, kind of as I mentioned in the beginning, where he would lure women from downtown back to his barbershop. 
Gilbert would tell people that women loved him and that he could pretty much get anyone he wanted. However, most people saw through this and knew that most people only hung out with Gilbert because of their free alcohol supply and his money. And as I mentioned before, downtown Eastside is very well known for substance use, so it was easy for Gilbert to find people who were also dependent on alcohol, much like himself. Three women Gilbert had been associated with were found dead. In 1980, he met Mary Johnson. The nature of their relationship was unclear, but Mary was found deceased with a blood alcohol content of 0.3 at the Elmer Hotel. So she, that's like, as you mentioned earlier, that's almost like equivalent of chugging 12 beers like right, right away. Yep. Holy. Please assume this death to be a suicide or accident. Mary's sister-in-law had actually received a phone call from Mary saying that she felt someone wanted her dead. And when Mary brought this concern forward to police, they dismissed her concern as they still believed the death was a suicide or an accident as there was no foul play. In September of 1981, police used the same conclusion they did with Mary when describing the death of Barbara Ann Paul, who was 27. Barbara was found deceased at a hotel with a blood alcohol content of 0.41. Barbara was a known sex worker and was reported to be a heavy drinker, so yet again, police ruled her death unnatural and accidental due to alcohol poisoning. This is just like, oh, like it's just getting me mad that it's like, it gets you, you riled can, up. You, like you can tell there's something going on there just by even like listening to this. Like if we saw this in the news and it was like three people died near Gilbert. We'd be like, I think Gilbert did it. And the cops just seem like, I don't think so. But keep in mind, as I mentioned, a lot of the individuals he was with are from marginalized populations. Yeah. And in this area, like overdose deaths were quite popular and like police were kind of familiar with this area. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, not to give them the benefit that of does the make doubt. Sense. However, when someone's blood alcohol content is so high when do you think, okay, this is, there's something suspicious going on here. Like, this Seriously. is almost impossible. Like, at that point, like you mentioned, when it gets to, I think it was like 0.3, like, they can start to pass out. And some of these girls are testing upwards of 0.5 to, I think, 0.6, if I'm not wrong. But, yeah. like, how are they doing that to themselves at that point? Like, they'd probably be on passed out. You're going to have to wait and find out. So, in 1982, Mary Doris John died actually while drinking with Gilbert at his barber shop. Gilbert would phone his lawyer to inform him that he had been drinking with a friend and that she died. His lawyer informed him that if it was in fact an accident and Gilbert had no involvement, then he should call police and say it was an accident because it was an accident. Mary Doris's blood alcohol content was at 0.76. What? And according to the coroner, this amount of alcohol was enough to kill a small woman two times over. Oh, there is no way that something's not going on. Her death was ruled an accident. Shocker. It was not until 1987 when Gilbert came into police suspicion after he spent the night on October 11th, 1987, drinking with a female friend named Vanessa Lee Buckner at the Niagara Hotel in Vancouver. Several times during the night, Gilbert would leave to purchase alcohol, and at 6 a.m. on October 12th the next day, he left the hotel for the last time. At 7.40 a.m., 
police received an anonymous phone call. In a room at the Niagara Hotel, they found the naked body of Vanessa Lee Buckner, 27, with a blood alcohol level of 0.91. So, like, is it at the point, so, like, I'm almost thinking, like, how many people did he have to be near that have passed away to finally raise suspicion? Absolutely. And actually, after this, police started to get suspicious, but they did not know what was happening. And again, lack of evidence. They couldn't just charge the man or or bring him in. You know what I mean? Because there was no... They needed enough. They needed evidence. In November 1987, there was actually another nude body found, and that was Edna Shade. This was the time, but this time police found another set of but this time police found another set of fingerprints on the scene, and those prints matched those of Gilbert Paul Jordan. Edna's death was yet again alcohol poisoning, and after this incident, police placed Gilbert under surveillance, and for 11 days, they would watch him like a hawk. During that time, he attempted to bring four separate individuals to hotel rooms in Vancouver's downtown east side. Each time, though, police interrupted. Again, they didn't have a lot of evidence to bring him in, so they're like, we'll just intervene to kind of stop this from happening while still keeping him under surveillance. Probably a good idea. Finally, on November 23rd, 1987, police arrested Gilbert after entering the hotel room to see Gilbert. What do you think happened? I hope that they just walk in at like possibly the best time that they could, but I have no idea. So when police walked in, Gilbert was found on top of his victim who was unconscious, forcing a bottle of vodka down her throat. So it's literally they weren't doing it to themselves. Speaking at least in this case, that's, oh my, do we know what her blood alcohol level was or is that even reported? I actually don't think I have that on here. I feel like at least with this case. She did not die though. Yeah, that's what I was. I was didn't yeah. think that she died. So no, I was, police yeah. intervened, thankfully. But yeah, that was what he would do. He would actually lay on top of his victims and force alcohol down their throat. Oh my god! And he is actually the very first Canadian to ever use alcohol as a murder weapon. I mean, it would probably be the hardest way to, I guess you could say, diagnose it. And actually, one of the victims. Um, that's like still alive kind of mentioned that he would force a bottle down their throat and not even let them breathe so like they were he was attempting to almost drown them so they're almost drowning in in alcohol while getting loaded lord so in 1988 gilbert went on trial and he showed no remorse for the crimes even saying they were all on their last legs Gilbert was only found guilty on one count of manslaughter for Vanessa Lee Buckner's death, for which he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but only served six as he appealed the sentence, which brought him down to nine years. I really hope you're joking right now. And also with his good behavior behind bars, it was shortened to six small years. He was forcing it down her throat. And they're like, eh. So he was released at the age of 62 in 1994. Now, with him being released, he was able to live a quote-unquote normal life during the day, but he did need to return to jail for the next three years for the night. So, like, he could kind of live live his life, like, 
throughout the day, but at night he had a certain curfew where he had to report back to the jail where he would sleep. Oh, okay. For three years. Okay. Did he get like, wait, sorry, did you say he wasn't allowed to drink? So with this agreement, actually, you just, yeah, you beat me to it. He was not able to drink. Um, and this was called a one chance statutory release. Now, I don't even know why they would even give him one chance because it, all the chances he's got, he's messed up. But now if he did violate these terms just once, he would be back in prison. And Gilbert lasted two years without violating his parole up until 1996 when he didn't return back to jail in time for his curfew. When midnight hit, the authorities issued a nationwide warrant for Gilbert's arrest and he was arrested for violating his parole. In November of 1997, so just a year later, Gilbert was officially released from parole. He maintained a good behavior for a while up until the summer of 1998 on June 23rd, where he met a local woman at the park. The two chatted and Gilbert invited her to his home. Gilbert would then hold her against her will, sexually assault her, and be arrested, but later acquitted as the woman was a known heroin user, so authorities questioned the truth to her allegations. Oh my god. Like, I'm sorry, but there is an obvious pattern here. When is like that when is missing. enough enough, you know? Seriously. Like there is an obvious pattern here that ever that so many people miss. It, yeah, and like if you look at his track record and be like, oh, he did this, but he got acquitted. He did this, but he got acquitted. It's like Okay, like, I think it's kind of adding up at this point. Again, he knew how to manipulate the system. Um, That's no excuse. I think he absolutely knew what he was doing was wrong. And I'm just thinking if he actually was able to serve all the time, how many victims could have been saved? Do you know what I mean? Like, how many times he would not have got the chance to hurt yet again another person? If there was a full investigation into what actually happened, he would have been light. Well, he would have been on the dangerous person yeah and not even in the sense like maybe he would never kill again but think of all like the children he exposed himself to yeah all the individuals he all the trauma that that would have caused absolutely and it's it in this case it seems like it's not taken as serious yeah so gilbert would spend the rest of his life in and out of jail for multiple offenses no surprise there mostly parole violations again no surprise there In July of 2006, he actually died, allegedly from psoriasis of the liver. Gilbert's brother Bud made a comment in an interview saying that the boys had a normal childhood and did not experience any type of abuse, so he was very confused why Gilbert turned out the way he did. Gilbert was a very sick man who chose his victims accordingly. All his victims were either of indigenous heritage or individuals who used substances, sex workers, or victims that did not have the mental capacity to understand what have might been going on. There were many red flags, but unfortunately, authorities continuously believed Gilbert a privileged white man over his victims. As someone who's worked in the field supporting marginalized populations, I have witnessed many times cases not being taken seriously because individuals either struggled with substance abuse, mental health issues, or both. This case made me really reflect on how many victims had the courage to stand up to Gilbert by telling authorities, and time and time again, Gilbert was let go. How does this happen? I would like to think that times have gotten better, but we see in the news all the time, kind of how we mentioned before, how missing and murdered Indigenous women cases do not get the same attention as white civilians, and unfortunately, many serial killers take advantage of marginalized populations for this very reason, and it is not okay. 
Um, and before we end this week's episode, I just want to say, please do not let how this case was handled represent your decision to come forward if you have experienced any type of abuse. Your feelings are 110% valid, and I encourage anyone who may be struggling to please reach out. We will leave some self-help numbers that can be available nationwide in the show notes. This case was really heavy to research and learn about, so if you are in need, please check out those resources. Again, thank you all so much for listening. We really, truly appreciate your support. With all that being said, stay safe, and we will see you on Tuesday.